In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our life this day, um, of yourself at Mass, your words to us in the Mass, um, your life itself, for all the ways you offer. Call us to your kingdom. Um, Our prayer, our Father, locates us there. Um, um, To take you into us, brings us into your kingdom, strengthen us in our efforts, to make that life with you there in the kingdom real here. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. In all things, most especially against ourselves, help us um, to live in your kingdom, to give our wills to your own, to do as you asked, particularly where it's hard, um, where our temptations um, may be great, whatever they are. Strengthen us, please, that um, we can um, Make our place with you real. Um, ask a blessing on Bob and Marcy. They have um, had an awful several months. Um, I didn't know that they, whether they would be here tonight or not. The fact that they're here is not surprising. Not Watch over Bob, um, the surgery that um, he has to have, um, and Marcy but particularly Bob. Protect, protect him, surround him with your protection. Let the doctor's minds and hearts be firm because they're not sure what they're facing. Um, he's always had a sense of humor, the absurdity of the world, he carries it. Um, um, help him to keep his heart strong. Um, whatever happens, let it be an occasion for um, growing stronger in his faith. That would be so for Marcy too. It'll be hard for her. Um, they're both old um, and widowers and, and they've come to depend on each other a lot. So watch over both of them. Um, and I ask a special prayer for all of us here for whatever prayers we're carrying in our hearts that um, they're silent right now. And also a special prayer for all those in the church who are um, carrying memories of lost loved ones. Um, Let their grief pass to a joy. Um, Whatever loneliness or sense of loss that they feel, offset it with a joy in um, knowing that their loved ones are with you. Help all of us carry within us whatever sorrows we face um, the joy of your promises help us always to keep those present no matter what happens we offer these prayers in your name our Lord Christ Amen I'm going to if you have Wilbur's poem I, I, right now I'd suggest don't do anything just leave it don't, don't even go I'm going to read it so you don't it'll be good for you guys just to listen Thanks. Um, Lots of people are going to the service tonight. Um, It's Richard Wilbur's Love Calls Us to Things of the World. Don't even, don't look, just leave it, just leave it. Um, Just know in advance, I'll just give a brief summary of it. It's a poem, it's a lyric, so it's told from the point of view of the poet. He's speaking his own feelings about something 
happening. Um, he's awakening from a dream and he looks out on the clothesline and what he sees are clothes. But because he's looking from that um, half, I don't know what to call it, irrational. I don't think it's here, it's not against reason. Because he's looking from that super rational state, dream state, where we're part in our unconscious and so more awake to spiritual realities than we are to the empirical world right in front of us, he suddenly sees something else. So what outside him are clothes on a clothesline suddenly take on another appearance. So it's the way the, let me call it the spiritual unconscious, that subconscious. It's not Freudian's animal unconscious. Um, it's the spiritual unconscious. Freud didn't know anything about that. It, it's alive with um, um, a radiant light from that spot in our unconscious that's full of light, even if we can't see it that way. To us it's in darkness, but so he's awakening and sees the sheets, but suddenly they take on an appearance of something else. And um, it reminds him of the incarnational nature of our love. We're not angels. We're not angels. We're not meant to stay in our head in abstractions. Everything we do is meant to be incarnated, to take an incarnated form. We're, we're humans, we have bodies. So, um, the title of the poem is, Love Calls Us to Things of the World. We're not called to abstractions. We are not called to, to remain in abstractions in our head because you know that ideas in our heads are unincarnated. They're just thought. They have no body. They're ideas. The, the, the poem is an affirmation of the way in which love is meant to find its fulfillment in the world in things, in the body, okay? So Richard Wilson, love calls us to things of the world. The eyes open to a cry of pulleys. Inspirited from sleep, the astounded soul hangs for a moment bodiless and simple as false dawn. Outside the open window, the morning air is all awash with angels. Some are in bed sheets, some are in blouses, some are in smocks, but truly there they are. Now they are rising together in calm swells of halcyon feeling, feeling whatever they wear with the deep joy of their impersonal breathing. It's like he's looking at spirits with this great variety of color. Now they're flying in place, conveying the terrible speed of their omnipresence, moving and staying like white water, and now of a sudden, they swoon down into so rapt a quiet that nobody seems to be there. The soul shrinks from all that it's about to remember from the punctual rape of every blessed day and cries. Oh, let there be nothing on earth but laundry, nothing but rosy hands in the rising stream and clear dances done in the sight of heaven. Yet as the sun acknowledges with a with a warm look the world's hunks and colors, the soul descends once more in bitter love to accept the waking body, saying now in a changed voice as the man yawns and rises, bring down from the ruddy gallows. So he's coming out of sleep and it's like a rape. 
to come out of that world of more spiritual oriented realities to come into the rape of the of the day where we have to accept the body and live with it again the soul shrinks from all that it's about to remember from the punctual rape of every blessed day and cries oh let there be nothing on earth but laundry nothing but rosy hands in the rising steam and clear dances done in the sight of heaven Yet as the sun acknowledges with a warm look the world's hunks and colors, the soul descends once more in bitter love to accept the waking body, saying now in a changed voice as the man yawns and rises, bring them down from their ruddy gallows, let there be clean linen for the backs of thieves, let lovers go fresh and sweet to be undone, and the heaviest nuns walk in a pure floating of dark habits keeping their difficult balance. It's a wonderful poem affirming our bodies that to, to come out of that sublunary world of the nocturnal, the nocturnal world of our dreams and enter the body again with all of its suffering, all that it asks of us, but all the joy of it too. Okay. Um, Anthony and Cleopatra. Before we start, God bless. Um, I want to take just a few minutes to go back and answer some questions that I left everybody with the last couple of weeks. You know that when we came out of Merchant of Venice, I was asking everybody, um, why are the men so light? this. Why are the men so light? Why are the men so light? I, I've read the passage I think a couple of times. Remember when the men were in the courtroom and Antonio's about to be convicted and Portia hasn't turned things yet but she will in a second. And Bassanio steps up bravely and says, um, I would willingly give my own life up and my wife's and you know and he lists all these things and including his wife and, and Portia who's in disguise says your wife wouldn't be glad if she were by to hear that. And then um, Graziano does the same thing. I would give my life. These men are, God, <laughs> these men are acting so brave. They're so cavalier. And Nerissa says um, it would cause an unquiet house that night if your wife heard it. So remember that um, it, it opens with Antonio Sand. The men offer their own interpretations of why he's sad, and neither one of them, Solario or Solano, get it. They're both projecting their own worries on him, so they miss. And we, we see early on that people don't connect in this world. They're so preoccupied with business, they're so taken up with business, that there's no time for friendships. Friendships <coughs> suffer, marriages suffer, families suffer. Belmont is in the world. Um, Porsche had a father, he ask serious things of her. She has to give her obedience to this ordeal. She's going to have to go through it. She does. Without complaining, she's going to marry Morocco or Aragon. She's very gracious with both of them if they make the right choice. Neither does. She ends up marrying Bassano and then remember he risks everything to woo her and she, she gives everything. So we see after the ordeal this um, 
wonderful coming together of a man and woman offering themselves completely to each other. And then they go back to Belmont. And it's there that she walks in and the, and the men say, hark the music. And I've suggested she's an image of poetry. She, she's an image of everything good in Belmont. And remember, you have to get to Belmont by, by way of sea. The, the sea is like the place of risking and uncertainty and mystery. They have to cross that sea. Um, she has to cross it to come to Venice. They have to cross it to get back. So there's an image in which for all of this to happen, the people have to be willing to enter into mystery and give themselves. And that's what Pisani and Portia do. In Belmont, it's a city of law and order. Everything's structured. And we see that there's um, the, the city's in peril. If, the, if Portia doesn't do what she does, Antonio dies and virtually the city collapses. So. But the men are light. They, and, um, Antonio offers the money freely. Bassanio borrows it. He's already borrowed and lost before. And then during the courtroom, seeing these men, quite consciously, <laughs> offer their lives and cavalierly offer their wives' lives. Um, and both women take them to task when they get, you know, they get back to uh, Belmont. So I ask the question, what is it about Belmont that makes men's, the men particularly so light? But I, I would say everybody. Belmont so hold, Venice. huh? Belmont or Venice? Sorry, Venice, did I? Venice. Hold on to that. When we did Othello, we, we, were, we returned to that Venetian world, but there, um, I, I want to be careful, of, we're still in that Venetian world. It's a, it's a world of law and order. It's still the world that we saw in Virgin uh, of Venice. But in Othello, what, we're, what we experience is this man, Iago, who is the most evil <coughs> character that I'm aware of, and almost in all, probably all of literature. There's some characters in Dostoevsky that come close, but he's, he's almost demonic. I remember reading those passages. Remember in the beginning where he says his reason for getting after Othello is envy, because Cassio got the job. And a few scenes later, later he says the reason he's going after Othello is because there was some suspicion that Othello slept with his wife. So he's like, he's like an image of something demonic. He will never lack a reason for what he does. There's something... There's something of us as humans that's represented in Iago. The ability for us to use our minds to come up with a reason, whatever the situation. So, in, in, as I read him, I, Iago to me represents something almost demonic. It, his reasons, his, his intellect, he had, remember he says, I am not that I am. Um, he is the reverse of God. God is I am that am. Iago's, I am not that I am. His whole being is to destroy somebody. God's whole being is to create, to bring things in. So in Iago showing us something, Shakespeare showing us something demonic, I believe, demonic, that, he's, that there is in this man something absolutely contrary to God. He will change his motives, but the end is the same. He wants to hurt he wants to injure. He wants to destroy. And what we, what we experience um, at the end of the play is that there's almost nobody in the play that he doesn't manipulate. He uses everybody. So the two questions I want to ask, the one question 
Well, two questions I want to ask that I want to get to in a minute. Is Yag or is Othello damned? And I know that that's a, a, a risky question because we're not supposed to damn it. I mean, it's not our place to damn people. But it's, it's my way of trying to take it to its pitch. Is, is Othello damned? He kills Desdemona, who he looked at as his soul, the pearl of great price. He kills her, and then he takes his own life. So, but I want to hold off on those. Okay, that, is he damned because of what he does at the end? Before we get there, I want to go back to these first two questions. What is, why are the men so light in Venice? What's going on? And, and why are these Venetians so susceptible to evil? The, 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 the proposition I was putting out the last couple of weeks is there's something about Venice that invites this evil because we don't see this uh, in such in such a expansive way for a man to have this kind of power that he can work this evil on so many people. So I'd like to just take a few minutes with those two questions. What what is it that makes the men so light and merchant? And what is it about Venice that 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 gives such an open play to evil the way it does? I think part of it is, it has to do with the law and how the law is used in this book and specifically how it seemed, uh, history's a little rough on this, but it seems to change a little bit after this and how Shakespeare uses law in his literature. And when you look at how this, the Venice and the state and the merchant state is formed around laws and around directives and things that have to be followed, right? she, figured, she figures out how to break it. Or if you use do this, it. it's broken. If you do this, it's broken. Either way, you know, with using their law, it's broken. Or you, well, go ahead. Go ahead. Right, right. If, you know, if you follow the law, then you're breaking. And I'm only saying that, Mark, because she doesn't break the law. She states she... Well, she, she, well she, she, she exposes the break in the law is probably maybe a better way to put it. And I think that in that environment, you see men saying things that they know they don't have to come good, clean on. They're doing it for show, and they're doing it for, because of the power, because of the atmosphere, everyone in the room, the, the, all the powers that are in the room, the judges and everyone else, and the, all the important people in the town are in the room. So they're, they're proclaiming things that, you know, let's say a politician, right? You can say it, but you know you don't have to come, you don't, you don't have to come good on it. So I think that's a, a statement on a modern type of how the law affects things. And... I say it does. I'm torn on your statement about how it reflects the modern city. I, I can see the, some of the roots of certain things, but I also know those politics has roots that go back thousands of years before that that are people doing the same stuff. Mm -hmm. Yes. So, so, but I think it's interesting how he takes that view with the law as it is in Venice and how it changes in the, in, in the Western world anyway after that. Because before it was very much Christian law and the church kind of dictated everything, back all the way to Justinian, right? It kind of dictated things. And after this, you see the state become the arbiter of the law. And you have the state law and you have the church law. And there's room for conflict past this throughout, you know, ever since then. 
and, and I think that he melds those two very well with Portia and her arguments in that room. And that's why, you know, she kind of figures out, if you do this, you break this one. If you do that, you break this one. Now what do you do? So she, she kind of shows the, the fallacy in the law as it opposes to both things. I think superficiality, that's, everyone is, you know, if you put all your eggs in one basket of money and making money and stature and this is who I am, it's kind of, you're kind of superficial. There's no, you know, that's... There's nothing new about that, though? That's what no, I'm saying, but I'm just saying. No, but I want to, I mean, I want to be careful, because a couple things before we go farther, because I, I really want to, I really want to be careful of our time here, but things have always been the same. We, we from the beginning of our work together, I've gone back to the very beginnings with um, Enoch and the city. So, from, but I want to be, I don't want to, I don't want to, um, I don't want to dismiss what we're learning from this by a generalization that says it's always been like that because it, it always has. But regimes have different characters. Mm -hmm. Russia's different, China's different, the United States is different, Turkey's different. Shakespeare's showing us something specific to the commercial regime and I don't want to lose that right now. I want to really hold on to this tightly because it's us. And just to, to be sure here we're clear, Portia doesn't break the law either way because she, She's really clear in that, so is Shylock. Break the law and the freedom of Venice goes. That's Shylock. She knows that. If she breaks the law, the commercial regime's okay. gone. Uh, Wait, just hold on. Mark, Mark stop. God. I I, listen, I'd like you to stop. Because you went on. Just stop. Because um, I really want to get other people here, too. And you don't, need to, you don't need to defend it. I just want to clarify something here. She doesn't break the law. Um, she... Because she knows if she does, it's gone. If you take away the law, according to the Christians, it's gone. What she does is hold to the law, um, but has to interpret it in a way that both protects it and gets to its end. That's what makes what she does unique. And just hold on to that for a second, but go back to my question, because here's my two questions. What is it about Venice? Because the, the law is important here, but that's my question is, what is it that makes these men so... Because it, it may be related to the law, but, but at least in the way that I'm expressing it, it's a separate question. What is it about Venice that makes these men so light, one, and two, what is it in Othello that makes them so susceptible to evil? That's the focus of my question. They're cavalier, you know. But Why? Because, like they say, well, you can take, you could do whatever with my wife. Blah, blah. I mean, that's, that's because I think they're superficial. Why? Thank you. I don't know why. I just see that that's... <laughs> this is Kathy Martinez. She was here a year ago and then moved and was back for a while, I guess. A week. A week. Anybody, anybody, anybody on this question? You're, I think you're absolutely right. My question is why? They are cavalier. They're too cavalier. Mm -hmm. For any man to... I mean, the interesting thing is they act so noble. Look how good I am. You know, I'm well, that's, that's a superficiality. But what's the my question is what in Venice? Is there something we can point to in Venice that encourages? Because it it's it's Bassanio takes out a loan. He takes out another loan. It, it doesn't matter because he thinks whatever you know. I'm. I don't. I don't know. But <sighs> I don't know what makes them cavalier or light or. But. 
I don't know. Does it date back? Does it date to the co commercial regime? Is it because they just think that's they don't have substance? It's all putting everything in one basket. Everything they're putting their lives, their their time, their talents, all to one thing, and they're forgetting the importance of. Is it thought that that's all they have? They only have the law to live by. Flesh that out, Carl. Can you? Well. We've talked before about there's the, there's the law and then there's mercy. Okay? We see the law and they're trying to use the law to you know, work through things and that's it. If the law says that, that's what we're going to do. They don't have an alternative, do they? Or they feel that they don't have an alternative. David, what do you say? You're, you've got a, a large business experience behind you. Any thoughts on this? Well, it, it's almost a catch-22. I mean, you, you're asking us a question of what makes them that way, and unless it's something inherited, they respond to the environment, and it's, it can be like a game. I mean, when you learn how to play the game to your advantage, then you will play that game, and if you see other people getting away with that game, that's what you use. Are, are you, right, I mean, that to me is really, are you thinking of that in relation to Merchant or Othello, both or more one than the other right now, the way you put that? Yeah, just, just in general, not... It seems to me that's a good description of what goes on in Othello, because everybody just seems to go along. Um, it's like a, and obviously they're not thinking, in, in modern terms, it's not uncommon for people to think about our world today in terms of a game, a box within a box, Learn how to play the game, and you can make whatever political maneuvers you want. Um, I don't think they think that way in Othello, but that's actually what's going on. I mean, there's nothing more for them than what's on the surface of things. Um, Does it have to do with appearances, Harvey? Sorry? Does it have to do with appearances? That, um, that they take money-making, the law, um, the courts um, at face value. They don't, they don't ever have to think about the law. They don't ever have to. Because? Because they're taking for granted everything. So this is what is, this is what's given. This is the, this is the environment they live in. And they take that for face value. And everything. And every, yeah. And so they don't ever have to, they don't have to think about what the law implies or what the law requires or the consequences of the law. They don't have to think about what happens if, if Shylock lets Antonio off. Um, they know what happens if he doesn't let Antonio off and they don't like that, but um, they don't think about the, end, the consequences of letting Antonio off. Um, or even the reason's no longer there. Sorry? There's no depth. Yeah. There's no depth. Yeah, let me pick up on what both of you are. Um, let me give quickly to move this on because I've got to be careful of time. Um, we're in a world in which God has been eliminated, virtually. This is the prototype of the modern Enlightenment world. It's our world, it's the world of reason. Religion is a, is a thing of superstition. <laughs> we saw that in Helena when she healed the king, and Lefeu says, miracles are past. 
The sacraments, the sacramental way of looking at the world is gone. We're in a rational world, it's an enlightenment world, and we're watching people use their reason with no sense of depth or any sense of vulnerability. If reason could do it, then all they have to do is learn to use it and, I mean, David's description of it, play the game. So one is it's the modern, it's the, it's the regime built on law and order. It, it puts, it vests everything in the world on people's capacity to reason. And what we see as things work out is how vulnerable that reason is, how susceptible it is, because if that's the basis of things, somebody evil can use it and, and few people see it. Nobody can see what Iago's doing. Um, a, couple of, a couple of things here, and it goes to, I think, what Susanna's saying and um, Valerie, too. Portia, this, is, this to me is one of the most, more important, at least as I think about it, um, Portia comes from Belmont, and we know she's read Aristotle. We know that from her words about the mean, and we know it from her own actions, and we know it in, from the perspective of, of experience, because she's the one who can work with that law to get to its end in a way that Shylock and the Christians can't. Shylock wants to hold to the bond because he knows if they break it, he, that's those, those are his words, then doom light on your city. Take away the bond and the city goes down. Christians want to take it away, it goes down. So in either case, to hold to the law, to hold to the bond the way it is, or to let it go, the city's gone. And what we're watching is a, is a superficial pride. Shylock wants to kill um, Antonio. He doesn't want justice. And the, the, the Christians have no sense of um, any deeper matters. They want, the mercy is clearly a superficial thing. So your word, and I think yours, What's interesting to me is, um, I think this is, I'm not, I'm not sure if this is where you were going, Mark, but if you're, if you're in a world that defines itself in terms of reason and transactions, those transactions ask of you certain mindsets, that you have certain things to do to accomplish something to be successful, to cut down your risks or, you know, one of, the, one of the people that um, Elizabeth Seaton used the word transactional, that all these men live in this transactional world, so their reason is confined to that level. What you watch Portia do, and she's a, it's a woman coming in. Her sensibilities are different. She, she does not belong to that Venetian world. She comes from an entire, she's obedient to her father. She obeys the law. She's clever enough to give Bassanio a hint. So, what I think what we're meant to see is that Belmont represents, if it represents anything, art, philosophy, music, beauty. It represents traditions and learning. So she's able to bring a learning to what she does so she can get off surfaces to depths. What, what traditions give us is multi-levels of responding to reality so that we're not just on the surface. We're not just in our heads thinking something through. Call it a depth, um, a sensibility, a capacity to feel, to think more deeply. All of those things that come when you've inherited a tradition and that tradition is a part of your life. It informs you. You carry it into what you do. Without it, you're on a surface. You're just left there. And if, if, if we take the play seriously, what we're watching is men, largely, who live on those surfaces, superficially, Cavalierly, they still want to be men. I mean, it's, the ironies are so deep. They still want to be men. 
look how good I am, I'll do this for you. They're doing what men, tradition, they want to do. But what we're seeing is an irony. They're, they just don't see what they're missing. Um, and that's why the women take them up at the end. I mean, in a sense, the women are educators. They're helping the men learn to be less cavalier, to take things more seriously, to be more careful, to think about things. And I think that carries over into Othello. What we see in Othello is people are too innocent. Take God out of the picture. If, what, if, if you're living in a world in which you deny God, he no longer has any meaning for you, and, and, and most of these people, I think, are Catholics. They're not living a faith, but, you know, in, in Merchant or Othello. If you take God out of the picture and you live in innocence, what's there to be on guard against? If you're denying God in one sense, implicitly you're denying evil. It doesn't exist. The stupid, I mean, one of the great error, one of the great ironies of Othello, remember when they get to the island, Othello puts them in on guard. The Turks are already, I mean, that's, it, all he's doing is heightening the irony. The Turks have been defeated. He's going through the motions. But what Shakespeare's doing is, is underscoring the, 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 the fact. They're all looking outward. And when, and when Iago starts working, what they're most concerned about, Cassio's most concerned about, is drinking too much. And at the end, um, what's her name? Uh, Bianca. She's a, she's a prostitute. They've got, they're, they're preoccupied with these morality issues, and they're not even seeing evil right in front of them. So we're watching people, it's like, remember when we did Moby Dick, when, you're, when, when, when Christianity loses its sacramental character, when the sacraments cease to have a meaning, the sacred, the holy disappears, the sense of evil weakens, what, take the sacraments out of the picture and Christianity descends into a moral code. And we're left in our heads once again to deal with the world. The sacred, the holy, the demonic, gone. So what Shakespeare's showing us is, is how vulnerable this, um, this modern commercial regime is, I think, for those reasons. that. Um, the glibness, the transactional character of the men in Merchant, and this innocence of people in Othello. Um, it, it's extraordinary. And by the way, and I, I don't want to make a big thing of this, but um, a number of people have asked. Um, somebody once said that tragedy is a comedy um, without the presence of a wise man. I don't think that's true. That is, put a wise man in, put Portia in Othello, and we wouldn't have the same outcome. I'm going to get to that in a minute with Anthony Klippet. I don't think that's true. What Shakespeare's showing us is that evil's at work in the world, and um, and it will it will work out. Evil will have its way sometimes. Um, this, it, with all of our good a efforts, whatever good efforts we make, evil will still people will still commit evil acts. Evil's always present. We have to do something until the end of times where the church asks us to be on guard. The irony of Othello is that nobody's on guard in the right way. They're all looking outward. They should be looking inward and, and a little bit more skeptical, but they're not. They're, they're too innocent, far, far too innocent. And I think that's, once again, it's a product of the modern commercial regime. It's, it, it, the Enlightenment regime, once you get God out of the picture, and um, 
So let, let me go, because we've got, I want to get to Anthony and Cleopatra. Is, a, quickly, is Othello damned? I want to get to these, this is, why are you laughing? Sorry. Mark just doesn't Mark, just, sorry, did you want to, come on, go back. Do you want to go back to those two questions? Sorry. Uh, one point of clarification. When I said she broke the law, I don't mean she committed a crime. I meant she like destroyed. I know. Okay. Okay. I know that. Okay. I know that. Secondly, yeah, of course he is. Number one, he's a moor. Number, <laughs> number two, he murdered somebody and he killed himself. Okay. Well, he's not damned because he's a moor. He's converted. He's baptized. He's a Christian. That's right. Yeah. Iago makes that clear because he talks about. But here, I'd leave that out just for a second. Just bef bef here, I meant to preface this. My question is, is he damned? And I, that's, and I, wait, wait, I, I know that that's a dangerous question because the second commandment says, don't take God's yeah. name in vain. We're not supposed to speak for God. No. It's, so it's not, but and if is he we... in purgatory or is he in hell? <laughs> so if I can just use that to heighten the question, I, I want to look at this because I think it affects, our, here, and let me just read these again so you'll be reminded. You remember He's over with fellow, or I mean Desdemona, and he speaks. It is the cause, it is the cause. He kisses her. He's breaking up. And he looks at her and he says, when he looks at her, um, seeing her makes him feel like he would actually do away with justice to not go through with the deed because he thinks of himself as enacting justice. Um, when she starts to, to protest, he protests because then he begins, he has to deal with this question of whether or not what he's doing is murder. Because in his own mind, it's not. He's performing it. Wait, wait, just, I want to get this out. So there's that difficulty, and he tells her to confess because he doesn't want her to go to hell. Um, he's doing, and, he, and when she says she's okay, he says, amen. Um, he does what he can in his own mind to protect her as a Christian. He does not want to damn her. He makes that clear. He wants to. He wants an act of justice because he thinks she's betrayed him. Now, I just want to read these two passages to focus again, so that we can deal with this question: Is how do we look at Othello's end? How are we to understand what he does? After he does the deed, Amelia comes in. Remember, she hears Desdemona's voice, Othello, and we think she's dead. And then he says, behold, I have a weapon. This is when they've left and um, Graziano's gonna come back. And Graziano is afraid of Othello because he knows what a great warrior is. And Othello's saying, don't be afraid of me. My life is over. There, there's no reason for it. He, he's lost, a, he is not who he was. His life is over in his mind. He says, behold, I have a weapon. A better never did itself sustain upon a soldier's thigh. I have seen the day that with this little arm and this good sword I have made my way through more impediments than 20 times your stop. He could fight 20, more than 20 Grazianos and kill them. But O oh, vain boast, who can control his fate? Tis not so now, be not afraid, though you do see me weaponed. Here's my journey's end, here's my butt, and very sea mark of my utmost sail. He has come to the end of his life. The, the heroic warrior that has been his self-identity is gone. Um, the very sea mark of my utmost sail, he's at an end. Do you go back dismayed? Tis a lost fear. No reason for you to be afraid, said Graziano. Man is but a rush against Othello's breast, and he retires. Where should Othello go? Now how does he look now, O ill-starred wench? 
pale as thy smock, when shall we meet at Compte? So at the end of time, at a reckoning, when shall we meet? This is the woman, the great love of his life. He's just killed her. When shall we meet at Compte? This look of thine will hurl my soul from heaven, and fiends will snatch at it. Cold, cold, my girl, even like thy chastity, O cursed, cursed slave, whip me, ye devils, from the possession of this heavenly sight. Blow me about in winds, roast me in sulfur, wash me in steep down gulfs of liquid fire, O Desdemona, dead Desdemona, dead, oh, oh. Now, so, and everything is unfolded now, and he comes to see that he was mistaken, that Iago worked all of this on him. And Iago kills Amelia, his wife, and they runs away, and they catch him, bring him back. And then Lodovica says, take these two men to jail. Um, and he specifically singles out Iago for some special torture, because he knows the cause of everything is Iago. And then Othello says, wait a minute. Soft you, a word or two before you go. I have done the state some service, and they know, they know it. No more of that. I pray you in your letters, when you shall these unlucky deeds relate, speak of me as I am. Nothing extenuate, nor set down aught in malice. And must you speak of one that loved not wisely but too well, of one not easily jealous, but being wrought, perplexed in the extreme, of one whose hand, like the base Judean, that's Judas, threw a pearl away richer than all his tribe, of one whose subdued eyes, albeit unused to the melting mood, dropped tears as fast as the Arabian trees, their medicinal gum. He's not a man given to weeping. He's describing himself as weeping. Set you down this and say besides that in Aleppo once, where a malignant and a turban Turk beat a Venetian and traduced the state I took by the throat, this Turk himself, took by the throat the circumcised dog, so part of him is taking the other part and killing him. Beat a Venetian and traduced the state, I took by the throat the circumcised dog and smote him thus, and he stabbed himself. Now before we take up the question again, remember, remember in Dante we saw that the people in hell were in hell because they didn't acknowledge their sins. Okay? They, remember, they lost the good of the intellect. They're denying that they made any sins. The ones who do admit their sins defy God. Yeah, there's a couple of who do that. They thumb their noses at God. So they're defying justice. Um, at the, on the cross, Remember the one sinner made the comment that he did and Christ said, this evening you should be in paradise. That was a sinner on the cross. We have the parable of the two men who are in the temple praying, you remember? Mm -hmm. And the one man boasts how good he is and said how good I am. And the other man says, forgive me Lord, I'm a sinner. Now stop and think just for a moment. Both of those men practice the same religion. They could be Catholics. Both of them are in temple. They're both religious, they worship the same God, they both pray. One of them is saying, look how good I am. And the other one is saying, I'm a sinner. And Christ makes clear after that, he says, I came for the sinners. So just hold that in mind. Now, what do we say about Othello at the end? And hold on, <laughs> Gita, what do you say? Is he, 
I don't know. Is he in danger? I mean, is he damned in this? He's killed his wife. He's taken his own life. What do you say? <laughs> that isn't what we have in his words. Another way to put this is, you know, I mean, I don't want to put him before Christ. What is Christ going to say to this guy? What's your... Wait, just... <laughs> no. Karen, what do you say? Uh, yes, he is. Yes, he was what? Damn. Da why? Because of his actions. Which one? Uh, killing his wife, killing himself. Both? Yeah. What about his words when he says, you know, I read the whip me devils. On, on, when we meet at Compt, uh, my soul will drag down and that's what he's wishing on himself. Because ordinarily, when we, at least in Dante, who is absolutely orthodox, the condition for getting out of hell is acknowledging your sins. That's what we saw in Dante's Spirit. That was the condition for... Remember, the law is still there. It's there in Inferno, it's there in Hell, it's there in Purgatory. We don't escape law. We have sins to pay for. The fundamental difference between them, those in Hell and those in Purgatory was those in Purgatory admitted their sins. They weren't so proud. I mean, they accepted their sins. That's why I just gave the example of the guy on the cross and the two sinners in the temple. So, well, it's not just admitting their sins. It's hmm? being sorrowful for them and wanting to make repentance. And you don't think that's true, Othello? No. no. Read, read those lines again where Othello talked about consequences that he recognizes. Which one's good? Just the last, last few Is it his last speech or the one before about the devils being whipped by No, the last speech. What he says, and it's really interesting because he says... Because there's clearly some recognition on his part that Iago's going to be tortured. He's done it. There's, I think there's a concern in his part because the state needs him and they know that he was worked on, but they may extenuate the circumstances for him. Wait, wait, wait. wait. And, and, he does, wait and he doesn't want that to happen. So let me read the words. Hold on. Then you. So he says... No more of that, I pray you in your letters, when you shall these unlucky deeds relate, speak of me as I am, nothing extenuate, nor set down on in malice, then must you speak of one who loved not wisely, but too well, of one not easily jealous, but being wrought, perplexed in the extreme of one whose hand, like the base Judean, threw a pearl away. So he says extenuate, now, are those the ones, or do you want me to keep reading, Carl? No, those are the ones. Do you want me to keep going or stop? I'm okay. Oh. He talks about one in tears. Set you down this and say besides that in Aleppo once there was a malignant and turban Turk beat a Venetian and a traduced, traduced the state. I took by the throat the circumcised dog and smote him. One way we can look at this ending is some good part of him is killing the Turk, the, the infidel, the bad, the evil guy. Yeah, but if he was baptized, he should have realized that's Still, he shouldn't have done this. He can still <sighs> repent without Remember, he's recently. I want to. I want to just ask everybody to be careful here. Just if you're a cradle Catholic and you've been raised all your life to live certain things, you they become more part of a habit. If you just entered the Christian religion and you spent your life as a Turk, he's falling back on a safe face. 
kill myself because I, I don't think it's time. saving. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's saving face. No. I think he's. I think he. So when I was thinking through it, I was trying to make a contrast between Judas, who kills himself, and obviously goes to hell, um, because he despaired. He didn't think God could forgive him. He was so bad. He just. That was despair. I don't think Othello is in despair. I think he believes he he should be punished. But he punishes himself. He does he does punish himself because that's old ways. That's <laughs> well, he punishes himself because he thinks there's the possibility that if they take him back to Venice, they'll let him off. No. But he says that. Hold on. Let me put. The, let me put it to you. Wait. Hold on. Let me put it as a question. Without ver- just sit on your hands for one second. What is there any difference between Judas and Othello in this moment? Because they both take their lives. Say that question again. Is there a difference between Judas and Othello in the, the motives? Because they both take their lives. Is there, I'm asking, is there a difference between them? Because he's, he says the base Judean, he refers to Judas in his words here. So. Well, supposedly people that believe that Judas was kind of, the Pharisees were using him to get to Jesus. To they both killed someone they loved. For whatever Someone else, right. someone else yeah, 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 yeah. came right. in and so, said... But my question is, is there a difference? Well, yeah. What's the difference? Judas killed Christ. That's a pretty big difference. why does Judas kill himself we're not talking about the object of the act we're talking about the motives of the person doing the deed why does Judas take his life because he comes to realize I think what he has done it, it, it would just now he realizes that he was totally wrong that he allowed himself to be used to be manipulated that money was more important than following Jesus, who was there to help people, to be kind to people, to heal people. And I think that's a form of despair also. The question is, is what Othello does in despair, is it the same or is it different? I want to put your two cents in. Come on, Chester, what what do you got? Did you... Okay, say something. No, I meant you, you were shaking your head at Judas. <laughs> no, I wasn't shaking. I was just listening. Oh, okay. All right. Chicken. I think, I, think <laughs> I think Othello killing himself is different from Judas killing himself. I think Judas <clears throat> killed himself, like Suzanne said, because he despaired of, of ever of, of ever being forgiven, of ever having... He took the easy way out. And I think Othello kills himself. I mean, it seems like he's doing the same thing, but I think he's doing it for a different reason. I think he kills himself because he realizes he deserves the punishment, and so he's punishing himself. Now, that's not... Can you do that if there isn't something good in you that recognizes the wrong? They did that always. They killed themselves on battle when they figured everything... Yeah, but the question... Yeah. But is yeah, I mean that is old warrior type of thing right. down with the ship. And the question here, no, and I'm glad you because it's true. Question here, yes, 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 yes. We're actually it's interesting because it's going to bear on um, 
Anthony and Cleopatra, because they're both going to take their lives. In Roman world, you did it out of, in a spirit honor. of honor. Honor, yes. Is, is that, and, I, and I, let me just get out, there's not a question how much honor means to Othelobi because it was a sense that he would be shamed by what this woman did to him. That he, but there's an extraordinary kind of love for another person that's involved here that isn't in a Roman whose greatest love was his honor or the state. Right. This is, I mean, I've, I've gone through those lines. This, this man's love for this woman is extraordinary. We don't hear lines like that anywhere in Shakespeare. So... Let me leave it here, if I can, with the question, because I think they're good. Because it, um, and the reason I want to leave it is not because, you know, I don't know that an easy answer or a final answer is, is possible, but I was hoping to just um, treat it in such a way that all of us saw the nature of a tragedy. That it's, I'm, and I'm going to get to this in a minute. That this is an extraordinary man. He's a, if we take that away, we take away the intensity of what's going on at the end. We can't diminish that with simple black-white judgments. Christ asked us not to do that. Um, this is a tragedy. This guy loved his wife. Um, I think there's a difference between Judas and Othello. You know, but, um, but I'm glad for the remarks everybody has made tonight because at least it, I hope it's a little bit clear that this is a terribly obscure thing. And the way that Shakespeare's handled it, to leave it this way, People can make black-white black, judgments, but clearly there's so much more going on that, that asks for something more than a simple black-white judgment, wherever we come down on it. It's just a, he's, he's taken us into the depths of a man's soul when he thinks he was wronged and then discovers he wasn't. Yeah, but see, that, that's a tragedy. He didn't believe in his wife. To me, that is the ultimate tragedy. Okay, let's... What? Quick judgment? No, stop. Did you want to respond? No, I was thinking about, I got this thing on the internet, and it shows a picture of this guy, and he says, okay, you have one of two options. One is you live with your wife or other. It goes, number two. Without ever hearing what number two is. That's why I was laughing. I think the tragedy is the fact that he believed that his honor was, that he allowed this all, he allowed, he allowed himself to be duped. Duped from a young that, guy. That's the, yeah, that's the trend. And that is why people that conspiracy commit murder usually, usually get more time than the people who do. You look back in cases. Because I mean, I, it's that I, evil and that manipulation to make someone do something. Not to say the person who did something still doesn't pay, but they get a little more time. I, I want to make one last comment and then I'd like to stop because we could go on and on with this. Um, Christ discourages us from making black-white judgments. Fundamentalists do all the time, all the time. Oh yeah. It's a distress. It's actually a personal distress of mine because we live in a country that too easily makes black-white judgments. The fundamentalist world does that. We're asked not to. Don't forget that Othello came from a warrior code. He was a Moor in Africa. He spent his life conquering people. He was a an a, an athlete, a jock. He's a warrior. He's used to fighting. He comes into this um, Western civilized state, which is a, in some sense a paradigm of the best things. That's one of the ironies, I think. Shakespeare is really laying us bare. This is, one of the, this is one of the examples of how good the West can be with its education. Its people are so articulate. They're so courteous. Cassio is 
is um, meticulous about his courtesies. Everybody. This is a world in which people live by courtesies, by manners, they're intelligent, they're smart. But what he's showing is there's this extraordinary innocence that makes them susceptible. If you go back to that scene where Iago begins to work on Othello and he says thought, 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 remember right? Othello's in a world that he doesn't understand. He spent his whole life conquering people and now suddenly this guy's going to work on him. So we're asked to make judgments we're, we're asked to try to stand with God in the way that he makes judgment, to be careful of ourselves, because he sees depths of things we don't. One of the things Shakespeare is doing for us, the claim I've been making all along, is that these poets take us into the world that we recognize, the Iliad, the Odyssey, Dante, whatever it is, but they take us into an interior, into depths that are obscure, sometimes inscrutable, we don't see very well, they help give us eyes and help us feel things going in there. It involves a great risk because to go there means we have to get off surfaces. And I think Shakespeare's doing that here with Othello. I mean, he's been doing it in all the plays, but this is a tragedy and it's a lot is going on here. Anyway, let me leave it there if we can all leave it. I think there are important questions for all of us to hold on to it. So it's a horrible thing. And in some ways it's, to me, when I think about the violence, so much a part of our culture today. Um, kids killing kids. Oh, what? Well, mothers killing babes. It's a holocaust. I mean, it, and, and I'm not just thinking about abortions right now. I'm thinking about all the news reports of a mother killing a child. You know, it's three or four. Or, or, or kids killing their parents. Um, so anyway, let's stop. Okay, I want to go to Anthony and Cleopatra. Um, remember three of, three of the things that I wanted everybody to be aware of going forward um, um, were the Copernican Revolution, Machiavelli, and the Reformation. Remember the Copernican Revolution ab absolutely turned the world on its head because it showed that the, the models of knowledge up to that time were all overthrown. So whatever authority people gave to institutions was suddenly undermined because the basis on which they knew was called into question. The earth wasn't at the center of the universe. It, it, it took its place among the planets. So it brought everything into question. It made, people, it made people question their assumptions about everything. That's why it was such a creative time because they couldn't take anything for granted anymore. The world had been turned upside down. But moreover, um, because this is crucial, at the center of the universe, the earth was outside of the eternal things. It was a place of death. That's where death occurred. The planets were eternal, right? According to the Ptolemaic, you all know Jupiter, Mars, Venus. So when you looked at the planets, you were looked at things that couldn't be different. They were eternal. That's the way they'd always been. That's the way they're going to be. Now stop and think about the implications of that just for a second. The earth was a place where mortality existed. People died. Things were always in flux, so you couldn't know them. Things out there were certain. Whatever you knew was infallible, because it wasn't going to change. When the earth took its place out there, it took its place with those things that could be known. So that meant we could know things about man that couldn't be other than they were. 
what we call determinisms. Science has to do with those things that are necessary, that can't be other than they are. Science studies laws, things that are repeatable, predictable. So an element of determinism um, gets infused um, with our knowledge of ourselves. That scientists begin to look at humans as if we can understand those determinisms in us and explain them. So um, 200 years later, Freud's going to say, these are fixed things in men's character, the polymorphous perverse, the Oedipus complex, other every, every human being has them. Um, it's, it's why he's been discredited, because he can't prove that, it's, you know, it's, but it was Freud's theory. It was a belief that these are determinism. These, are, these shape the way we are. Um, so Copernicus, the Copernican Revolution took place. That was already behind. Machiavelli wrote, um, arguing that a, um, a ruler could do anything um, to protect the order of the state. The ends justified the means, so if it, it meant you had to kill somebody to achieve a certain end, you could do it. People were expendable. So a whole different view of politics enters the West. And then the Reformation, as you know, we've, we've gone through all of this, in which most of the, the, the dominant Reformation thinkers claimed that man's fall was complete, he was depraved, he had no free will, it was only with God's grace that man could use his powers of reason or overcome himself. And so very dark views enter the West in the 16th century. Um, and Shakespeare's writing at that time. Um, so up to this point, this is, why, this is why I wanted to do this. Here's, I've asked this question before, right? If, if you want to get a sense of um, who we are and what we do, you ask this basic question, what are our beginnings? Are beginnings high or low? I've asked that, right? Mm -hmm. So everybody clear on that? Are, what, are, what are the beginnings of ancient man, high or low? High. High, right? Descended from the gods. If you look at all the epic heroes, Achilles, Odysseus, they all d descended from some divinity of God. Are the beginnings of modern man high or low? Low. Is everybody clear? We came out of a big bang or we came out of apes. We've evolved. That's the modern theory. So, so our, under, our self understanding, our image of ourselves in the modern world tends to be degraded. It's far more degraded than it was in Shakespeare's time. Shakespeare still holds that man's capable of this great depravity like Iago, but he's um, capable of this great um, nobility too, like Portia or Helena or Henry IV, um, Henry V. Henry v. Um, we've been here in the last three plays, Merchant of Venice, Othello and All's Well take place on this threshold where um, we're just entering the modern world and Shakespeare was exploring the implications of it. In all three plays, we saw it in Merchant, we saw it in Othello and All's, in All's Well, Helena brings something from this Italian world back into France to this beginning of a transformation in that French aristocracy. What I, so, and we saw that there were lots of Christ figures in these plays, Portia was a Christ figure, clearly. Helen is a Christ figure. Um, she takes on this great love, and when Bertram runs away, the coward that he is, 
um, she follows him. She takes the whole thing on herself. She said, I did it. It was mine. So um, she takes the whole thing on herself, pursues him to fill these conditions that he put on her. He's, he's like, um, Bertram's like um, Walter in, uh, what's the tale? The clerk's tale the, with Griselda. Griselda. Remember the husband? All those conditions he put on his wife. She meets all those conditions. She's extraordinary. And so we've got images. If, if you read Shakespeare's Henry V, you'd see an extraordinary king. In some ways, he, he, by far the best king in all of Shakespeare's work, what Henry did. So Shakespeare shows us um, how bad man can be and how great he can be, and the cost of it. We saw over and over again in both Chaucer and Shakespeare that nobody can become who they are without learning to give themselves up. That so long as we keep pushing our wills to have our way, tend to be selfish, we use other people, we've been watching this in play after play after play. Um, but we saw these Christ figures here. What I wanted to do, and we're in a Christian world. That's why Lefeu can say miracles don't happen anymore, because Shakespeare's writing in a Christian era, or coming just out of it, um, shaped by Christ. Um, in Anthony and Cleopatra, I wanted to go back before Christ came. Um, because it's Shakespeare again, but Anthony and Cleopatra, he writes late in his life, it's a tragedy, um, but he's going back to a regime before Christ came into the world. Since we've been trying, in every work we've been reading, to see if we couldn't find Christ where ordinarily we don't see him, I wanted to see if we could do it then. So here's my question. Um, what, <laughs> what was God doing before Christ came? I know that's going to sound silly. Whatever you want. <laughs> <laughs> you don't ask those questions. <laughs> that's the first thing you ask. Complicated. <laughs> Here, would be still. Yeah, like you don't ask those questions. <laughs> Here, um, Anthony and Cleopatra. By the by, the way, I I think it's a really complicated play because there are so many scenes in this play. It's got more scenes than I think any other play we've read. That's why I've given you the summary. I took that I think from Spark Notes or something. It was just a quick summary. Um, a couple of things to note before we go into this. Um, when Caesar defeats Antony and Cleopatra in his battle, he virtually brings to an end the Roman Republic as we know it today. Shakespeare knew history better than any historian who's ever lived. He knew it better than historians today. He, he read all the histories, he knew the Roman histories, he knew the Greek historians, he knew them all. He, he read the philosophers, it's so clear from his work. Um, when Anthony and Cleopatra are defeated by Caesar, that brings to an end the Roman Republic. Shakespeare knows all of the phases of Rome's Republic, just as he knew Greece. The play Coriolanus, has to do with the very beginnings of the Republic. That's the beginning of the Republic as we know it. Um, Julius Caesar has to do with that moment when um, Brutus and Cassius kill Caesar because he was claiming too much power. They were trying to protect the Roman Republic, which is the other, Greece and, Greece and Rome are the models for America. The Grecian democracy, the Roman Republic. We call ourselves a Republic. One part of us is Roman. We believe in freedom. 
the, the line in this book, when Pompey, uh, Pompey says, so that we can have a regime, how does he put it, where one man can be one man. It's not the, what, he, what he's saying is, we won't be the regime we can be until each man is valued. That's absolutely at the, at the, at the core of our beliefs in democracy. <coughs> so a republic believes in the freedom of each individual. Coriolanus was the beginning of the republic. Julius Caesar was that point of crisis where Brutus and Cassius want to kill Caesar because he's, he's being made into a god. When that happens, the, the belief that one man is as good as any other man disappears. Antony and Cleopatra marks the end of the Republic as it existed, okay? And it's interesting that, that um, Shakespeare chose that regime to mark it because it's that, that story, that episode involving Antony and Cleopatra and, and Caesar, that takes place just before Christ came into the world. So here's my question. If you read historians, if you read historians on the history, you will, you will never get a historian dealing explicitly with divine matters. You just won't. Just won't. The basis of history is empirical. It's what the census can confirm, so historians, right. If you go back to the ancient Greeks, to Herodotus and... Who's the other one that I... Thucydides? I can't remember. If you go back to the Greek historians, there's mention about the gods. But they're different from modern historians. The methodologies of modern historians wouldn't allow that because you couldn't prove it empirically. Shakespeare knows history as well as anybody. Um, he's dealing with Anthony and Cleopatra. It's a historical moment. So here's the problem we're facing. He's dealing with an actual historical event, but he's dealing with it in a way that goes into the interior of people. He'll go into Anthony's inside and Cleopatra's. We get to know them from inside as people. And he's also showing something, um, he's making us aware of something that historians can't deal with. We'll just have to wait on that to, okay. Um, so this is the first time we've been, we, we've been reading a history that's factual based, done by a poet who doesn't hold himself to what historians does. So as we read, we've got to be aware, what is the poet doing with this event? that the historians couldn't do. And the fundamental for, question for me is, is God in this? Is Shakespeare showing us something about God that a historian can't? And you already know he's Catholic, he's Christian, or I'm assuming that in the works that we've done. So what's he doing? What's he doing here? Um, remember the definition of tragedy. Remember, um, <laughs> tragedy, goes from prosperity to calamity. Comedy goes from um, bad fortune to good fortune. Tragedy from good fortune to bad. But according to Aristotle, every tragedy, good tragedy, involves a turn, a peripatia, a turn, and an anagnorisis, a recognition. So that what happens in the backside of a tragedy, the turn, um, brings us back to a good. It's, it's completely compatible with Boethius. Every tragedy restores an order. It answers an injustice. So whatever, whatever goes on returns us to some good. Remember Boethius' words because Shakespeare lived them. There is no bad fortune. There is none. 
If our God is present, he's always at work. There is no bad for him. He's, he's, doing, he's taking all the stupid things we do and working to help make them better. So every tragedy involves the restoration of an order, even Othello, which, which is why I wanted to press on these questions. Is there a good there that we might be with, missing? Every, that is, remember, Shakespeare didn't end the, he didn't end the tragedy with Othello killing and killing Amelia and running out. Or he didn't end the tragedy with Othello killing Desdemona, who would have radically changed, he, he changes it after that acknowledgement of his sins and then that, that last speech of his. Why did Shakespeare do that? Every tragedy involves the restoration of an order, a recovery of something natural in the natural order. Okay? That's why we always have that turn. Now, remember this, because it always, it always means it, there's a return to justice. After this turn, the peripatia, after the turn and the recognition, the tragic hero sees his fault, he turns. It can be Lear, Othello, Macbeth, it doesn't matter, Hamlet, Oedipus, Oedipus blinds himself. Here's something lots of people forget. Oedipus blinds himself. I think anybody who looks at that sensibly is going to say, Oedipus at the end of Oedipus Rex, with his eyes gorged, absolutely gorged, is a beautiful creature. All through that play, he prided himself on how wise he was. What a smart man. He's the one who saw the riddle of, of, of the Sphinx, the plague. He thought he was a bright man. He thought he knew everything. Um, he's, he's a much better human being at the end when he blinds himself and there's blood pouring out of him than he was at the beginning. He's the most moral creature in it. And Sophocles saw that because the end of the trilogy, the last <coughs> play of the trilogy they wrote, called Oedipus at Colonus, Oedipus um, experiences an, an assumption. He ascends with the gods because he's wiser than any other man through his suffering. He's learned to see things that he didn't when he thought he was so smart. So all tragedies restore us to an order. It involves the scene of something. All tragic heroes come to a point of recognition. That's what makes the tragedies heavy. Um, James Joyce once, in, when he was talk, thinking about the genre, said this. He was reading a newspaper article and, and the reporter was describing a young girl in a carriage driving on the street and a pane of glass shattered, happened to break loose and shattered, and the shiver from gl that glass struck her, pierced her heart, and killed her. And the reporter's description of it was, that was a tragedy. Joyce said it was not a tragedy. And Joyce is right. That was not a tragic. Tragedy means it's an action involving this thing that I'm talking about. The fact that some, something bad happens to a person doesn't <coughs> constitute a tragedy. That's the way we rhetorically use our language that way. A tragedy is an action. It, it's, it's one thing and not another. It doesn't just express an accident. It's showing that there's a meaning to the universe that through our suffering, we become better. All tragedies. Otherwise, we're in a modern world of absurdity. There's no meaning to things. We just die and that's it. Well, what's the meaning of the dirt girl dying in that way? Accident. Well, you can say it's, it's an awful death and an unfortunate death, but it's in strict terms, what I'm trying to do is it's I want a tragedy for the parent of that child. It's not no. a tragedy. <laughs> It's, 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 it's terribly, 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 terribly,
What I want to do here is just protect a word because we get so casual. It's a horrible event. Nobody will deny that. What I'm trying to suggest here is that in terms of art, if there's some way in which the poets can help us see something that the gods see, that there's a meaning to suffering and sorrow, the, the two ways in which that's done in drama is through comedy, which Merchant and Oswell, and tragedy. But from that view, tragedy does not mean just because something horrible happens to somebody. It's, we can use that word. We use it all the time. All of us do. What I'm, what I'm trying to do here is, is, is be clear about an important distinction because I want everybody to hold on to it. Because the easiest thing to do at the end of Hamlet, Othello, Macbeth, Lear, Anthony and Cleopatra, Anthony and Cleopatra are going to kill themselves. We're going to be dealing with the same question again. Well, Shakespeare does that a lot. It's dealing with tragedies a lot. People kill themselves all the time. <laughs> all right? Hey, I need an ending. Uh, no. <laughs> don't, don't forget, don't forget Ham Hamlet didn't kill himself, and I, I don't want to go there. No. Remember all the, and we, I, we did Winter's Tale together, which to me is an extraordinary thing. But anyway, Gita, did you have something? You, you did. You guys think talking about killing yourselves, um, a colleague of mine two years ago just killed herself two weeks ago. Two weeks ago? Wow. wow. That's the second one? But you know what? She, it wasn't her though. I think she I think she had a mental illness. And I can't I gosh. So I don't feel she's damned, I really don't. I just feel she's probably in heaven. The church takes a um, a quieter stance on that than it okay, did before. Illness, yeah. You just for that reason, that yeah. mental illness, just in our in the modern world, you know, the heavily rationalistic insanities are increased, madness has increased, and the church has made that clear in its stance on suicide. That we have to be far more careful than say, 150 years ago. I, I would be glad if next week, when we meet, if you're here to just ask for prayers. I'm sorry, I don't know if you did or not, but I just would like us to pray for her. I didn't, but all this killing, it just fell out. Oops. <coughs> Oops. Sorry. Okay, so in Anthony and Cleopatra, we're going back to an actual historical event, except we're looking at it through the eyes of a poet who's, who's going to take something that actually occurred but it's going to be Shakespeare, and it seems to me it's, it's, it, it's going to go to this question that I asked. What was God doing before Christ came? And let me try to flesh that out just for, for, a, for a second before we... Before I, I'm just going to read the opening lines and go over some things, and we'll, we'll stop in a few minutes. What was God doing before Christ came into the world? Our belief is that God is a trinity of persons, was a Father, a Son, a Holy Spirit, all indwelling, so they were perfectly one for each other, one with each other, yeah? I mean, I hope that's, we're on that same ground together. There was one God. The Father's conception of himself is the Son. It's his image. He conceives himself. So he has to share his nature. He's one in being. The love between them is the Spirit. So they are abs they're distinct, and one in nature, okay? If the Son is one with the Father and he becomes Christ, 
Will, will, the, will the Son ever, ever do anything that would put him at odds with the Father? He's tempted. We know that as a human being. We have to take that seriously. But in everything he did in obedience, what he does is reveal the Father. He says that again and again. Man, the man, Son of Man has no place to lay his head. This is not his kingdom. In me you see the Father. So in whatever Christ is revealing, he's showing what was always there. So it's, I, the reason I'm saying this is it's really important to be careful about how we read the Old Testament and New because some people read it as if the Son is abrogating, doing away with the Father. No he couldn't do that. No yeah, I hope that's clear. Absolutely clear. It cannot be. Whatever importance we give to justice in the Old Testament has to be identified with the Father. What were the Father's commandments? The first two commandments were love your God more than anything else in the world. That was his first commandment. Second was love your neighbor. I mean, the Jews added laws which affected you know, the way they worship God. But, but the point I want to make here is that if Christ is the Son incarnated, in any way in which he's obedient to the Father, he's absolutely one with him. He's revealing. There can't be any way in which he would have abrogated or nullified or undermined the Father's law or his love. Right? So, um, what was the Father doing before Christ came? Was he inactive? Was he not watching his people? No. Uh, we know. Sorry? Yeah. We know. And it wasn't just confined to... The Hebrews, the Jews, if this was the father of all of his creation, he was present everywhere, always. Always. What Christ came to do was to atone for something by taking on our nature because we couldn't do it ourselves. But God has, was always there. Now the reason I'm pressing this so much is in Anthony and Cle Cle Cleopatra, my question is, Shakespeare is going to give us an actual history. Historians will never deal with the divine. Is Shakespeare showing us something about the divine working in the world when the Romans and even modern critics can't see it or won't see it. Okay, I just want to put the question out for you to think about when you read. It's a complex question. Can I simple, let's see, simplify it? Is, is there just something going on that by, by what Shakespeare does that makes us aware that something more is going on than a historian would show us? Okay? Now let me let me just start and just for a few minutes and we'll, we'll go. So some of the great themes of Anthony and Cleopatra. The same theme in Midsummer Night's Dream, the city and love. Okay? Um, the Romans are absolutely preoccupied with everything in the city. And we've seen from the beginning, I mean it goes to Mark's point. The city is a place of trial. Um, Rome is identified um, as a masculine place. It's where men want power. And um, their belief, their assumption is, if they only have enough power and strength, they can overcome whatever obstacle they face. Egypt is identified with the feminine, with woman. It's a, pace, it's a place of pleasure. In Rome, men are constantly looking back to the past. They're always trying to, un, to make up for a past. And what the play makes clear, they never can. All the, they, they live with the sense of the failures. Like, I'll make that concrete in a minute. In Egypt, that's not so. Cleopatra wants to live in the moment, to have nothing but pleasures. When Anthony comes there, he's undone. Everything he does is a shame to Caesar and Rome. 
So Shakespeare, like the other plays, every play we've had, we've seen two settings. Venice, Belmont, Venice, Cyprus. Here it's Rome and Egypt. Rome is masculine. It's given to power. It's businesslike. It keeps using, it's so much like Venice. It keeps, it, it, its mindset is strategies on what to do to achieve their goal. Success, how to be successful. Egypt is given to pleasures immediately in the body. Not, not the past, not the future, now. Um, it's said in the play that there's no place in Rome for women or poets. Hold on to that. I mean, seriously, hold on to that. At the end, Cleopatra's going to be very clear that if she lets Caesar take her captive, that the Roman poets will boy her take away her femininity, because she's a scandal to the Roman world. So Rome looks down on women. Why? Because generally speaking, women are not warriors. Fulvia, Antony's wife, was an exception, and they talk about her as this great warrior. So Rome's very masculine. Egypt is very feminine, and he's putting those two worlds together. Both of them, both of them are striving for an end that neither one of them seems to be able to achieve. Now hold on to this, and, and, and I hope you'll hear the reference here. Where is this still point? You all know that from Elliot. Where is this still point that both regimes so desperately long for and they can't seem to find? Okay. Um, Rome is a place of strategies of looking ahead for success. Egypt is a place of prophecies. The prophet gives several prophecies, and it's ironic if we'll start there next week. Every one of the prophecies that he makes comes true. It involves the women, um, um, Cleopatra's handmaids. It's a sad moment. They're all laughing about it, but every one of those prophecies is going to turn out to be true. So there's something prophetic. Rome is a place of um, strategy and success. Egypt is a place of vision, of immediate pleasures. Um, um, Rome looks down on women, Egypt looks down on men. When the, when the prophet talks about men, he, talks, he says that um, Charmian, one of the handmaids, makes fun and said, um, no man who isn't cuckolded is worthy to be called a man. Unless a man is cuckolded, unless a woman can pull everything over him, he's, you know. So Shakespeare is dealing with serious antitheses here. The city, love, male, female. Um, and this last thing. We have been talking about um, apophatic knowledge for a couple of years now. Remember, the apophatic um, tradition is, the, is what in the, in the language of the church is called the via negativi, the way of negation. There's two ways to God. One is the way of affirmation of images, that's Dante, the affirmation of, the way to get to God is through the things that are made. The way of negation, the black night of the, the dark night of the soul, is to take things away. To leave man in that darkness where he has to confront himself without the help of. So apophatic knowledge is one of the most serious traditions of the church, it's the mystical tradition. Apophatic is, is an, is, is a way of knowing without knowing something. We're in absences. Um, 
Remember when we talked about Chaucer and when we went through those lines when in the Knight's Tale, when Arceta was killed and he kept saying, I'm not going to talk about this, I'm not going to talk about this, I'm not going to talk about that. That was epiphatic. In this play, I'm just saying so you all, as you read it going forward, Shakespeare's dealing with gaps of time, absences, privation, gaps. Why? And he's also dealing with um, withdrawals. Um, um, one of Pompey's um, men is going to leave him early on in the play because he thinks he's losing it as a general. Eno Barbus, who's to me one of those admirable lieutenants in all of Shakespeare, is going to leave Anthony. Um, at the very end, the, the man who is Anthony's companion, he asks him to kill him. He won't because he can't. He loves Anthony too much. Cleopatra will ask her handmaids to kill her. They won't. What we're watching at the end of the play is every one of these people doing something for the sake of a love that transcends this Roman order of honor. What is Shakespeare showing us with all these absences? And let me, let me start with just one here to get. Here's the beginning of the play, just to give you an example. If you've got the play, just turn to the opening pages. Um. Nay, but this dotage of our generals overflows the measure. Those his good, godly, goodly eyes that o'er the files and musters of the war have glowed like plated bars, now bend, now turn, the office and devotion of their view upon a tawny front. Anthony has lost himself. There's nobody who has any question that he's the greatest warrior in the world at that time, greater than Caesar. Far greater than Caesar. Caesar won't do battle with him when Anthony challenges to settle their quarrel by single combat. Because Caesar knows he'll die. But Anthony also knows that when he's with Caesar, he absents himself. Next to Caesar, he loses who he is. So the opening scenes, the opening lines give us a sense of a man who's lost between two worlds. His captain's heart, which in the scuffles of great fights has birthed the buckles of his breath, reneges all temper and has become the bellows and the fan to cool a gypsy's lust. So remember I've said the opening lines always give something away. Here's a man who seems to have lost himself. He's not one or the other. Where is he? Here's where I wanted to go. So with that introduction, suddenly Anthony and Cleopatra appear on stage. Okay. So here are the opening words, the first words spoken by the major characters. Cleopatra. If it be love indeed, tell me how much. Anthony, there's beggary and the love that can be reckoned. I'll set a bourne on it, a limit, how far to be loved. Then must thou needs find out new heaven, new earth. Now where's the apophasis here? What's not said, what's absent? What was just said before the two made their stage entrance? Cleopatra, if it be love indeed, tell me how much. Anthony, there's beggary. He can't say how much he loves her. She says, I'll set a limit. He, then must thou needs find out new heaven, new earth. So already the play is going where historians could never go. What was just said before they arrive on stage? What? 
For Cleopatra to say, if it be love indeed, tell me how much. What does that mean Anthony just said to her? Endless. Hmm? Endless. I love you. He's just, clearly, he's just said, I love you. She, if it be love indeed, tell me how much. She's in the middle of intrigues. I mean, they are, they're going to be caught. Love is going to be tormented here because like the worlds we've been looking at, they're in a world that is loveless. He's just said, I love you. And she says, tell me how much. Boy, she's demanding. Now, <laughs> here, here's, here's where, here, stop for a second. Why are those words not spoken in the play? Shakespeare's, I mean, think about, we talked about, remember when Portia comes home and they go hark the music? And I said, stage gestures speak. Why did Shakespeare not speak those words? He could have said, he could have taken one line back and, and Anthony could have said, I love you, and she say, tell me how much. But he doesn't, why not? And then for Anthony to conclude this, that then that must needs find out new heaven, new earth. What's being said? What's the meaning that can't be spoken here? That Shakespeare is letting us know. Are you guys following me? There's a, what's the meaning that, that isn't being given words? It's absent, and we know it by its absence. It's apophatic. That there is a heaven. There's no there needs to be, no, yeah. needs to be remade. So he's acknowledging, a, he's acknowledging in an Egyptian play a Christian thing. Yeah. Which wouldn't have existed. And the question is, is that because for Shakespeare he knew God was there even if they couldn't see it? Well, he knew his audience. Are you guys following? Yeah. This is extraordinary. And, or to put it differently, do the Romans know Christ? At this point? No, they don't. So what, what, I just be alert as you read through this. Be, pay attention to gaps, vacancies, absences, um, betrayals, departures, withdrawals. At the very end of the play, Anthony's God, Hercules, is going to withdraw. Who's going to take his place? What's Shakespeare doing? It's as if he's, he's showing that something is happening to prepare for something not yet. The Romans don't know it. Historians can't show it. The poet is. So as you read this play, be aware of those things that can't be spoken, that are there, that we know in their absence. It's like the mystical tradition. No? Yeah. No. Any, any, is that clear? This looks like it's going to be a trial here, a real test. It's as clear as always. Yeah. I have a question. Wait, once, just, let me. Sorry, David. Yes, sorry. Is Millie okay? Yeah, oh, yeah, she's in Albuquerque with us now.